This past week in the pastor's college, we had a long discussion of a number of things, and uh, what it helped me to see is to recover again the biblical doctrine of the church and of her dignity, her beauty, her necessity, her authority, but also of, in her motherhood, of her husband, her bridegroom's protection of her. And that's what I want us to begin to think about today. It's kind of a weird text for Mother's Day. But I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 to 9. And I want to start there thinking today about motherhood. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we know this story. This is the story of the uh, beginnings of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Before he was called Paul, he was called Saul. And he was of Tarsus, uh, the area of Cilicia. And he was born a Roman citizen, which is kind of like being born a U.S. citizen today. Um, You like to have a U.S. passport when you travel overseas. You like to have it particularly when you get back to the U.S. And so Paul was a Roman citizen, but he was also the cream of the cream among the Jews. And when it came time for him to go off to university, as it were, he went off and studied under Gamaliel, who was the top scholar of the Jewish world. So Paul, Saul at the time, was a golden boy. He was Roman citizen, and he was the student of the top scholar of the Jewish world. And so this was a young man who was headed to leadership at the very top. And we see that he was, from the very beginning of the book of Acts, um, proving himself to be uh, capable of leadership by being at the forefront of the persecution of the followers of Jesus Christ. At that time, uh, they had crucified Christ, and they were in the process of persecuting Christ's followers. And so the first martyr of the church, a man named Stephen, who was a deacon, uh, we see that this man, Saul, was present at his martyrdom. He was a young man, and we read in Acts 8 that, or excuse me, the end of chapter 7 first. In verse 58, it says that when they, the Jewish leaders, And all the people had driven Stephen out of the city. They began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And so here's Saul, uh, right there at the beginning. He's the one that's keeping the coats while everybody does the work of killing that godly man, Stephen. Then at the beginning of chapter 8, we read, stating this martyrdom of Stephen, what Saul's position was relative to it, it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And then we go to verse 1 of chapter 9, and it tells us that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, who was he persecuting? The disciples of the Lord. And then verse 2, he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any, belonging to the way. So the two things are disciples of the Lord and those who belong to the way. Now, what's the meaning of this statement, belonging to the way? Well, it's similar, same root to uh, the word that we have in English called Methodist. In other words, uh, you know, it was a a term of uh, denigration in England to call a specific group of Christians Methodists, right? Well, these were the way. Now, what does this have uh, reference to? Well, you remember that Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that is one of the meanings, but the way is the path to heaven. And these are all the people who are joined on the path to heaven, and they're known as being disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus Christ, people who are in the way. This was the earliest name that was used to refer to Christians. Now, on this Mother's Day, let's note right from the beginning that Saul did not spare the women. Calvin makes reference to this and says that even in war, um, typically warriors will avoid harming the fairer sex, but not Saul. Women were fair game with him. He breathed murderous threats. So in other words, it's women as well as men. He has no mercy on the women, and it's not just making fun of them and sending child protective services to them. And, and by the way, I should just mention to you that this last week, one of the young mothers in our church wrote on her blog a comment in passing about how they had disciplined their daughter. And child protect, and, and a whole bunch of people showed up on her blog and just hammered her for disciplining her little child. Because we live in a, a world that hates discipline. And so... She and her husband pulled the blog off, made it private, but the people that were furious at her for talking about discipline told her they were going to call Child Protective Services. So the next day, Child Protective Services showed up to see if they needed to take her child away from her. Now, those of you who are mothers, do you feel this? All right? And so that's why I prayed about this. This is the world we live in. This is a a family that uh, are are crunchy conservatives. Uh, You know, they have a a Blooming Foods sticker on their uh, Subaru. 
And so the reason I tell you this is, those of you that don't know about it, you just need to be aware that this has shot like a lightning bolt through our church. And mothers are afraid because of this. And well, we should be. You know, Mary Lee and I have been visited by Child Protective Services. Now that makes sense, right? (laughs) Okay. So here we have, on this Mother's Day, this picture of Saul being focused on the women as well as the men and not simply threatening them with child protective services, if, if, if you understand what I'm saying, but murderous threats. He goes, he has a letter that authorizes him to take them prisoner, to take them back to Jerusalem, and we know what's behind all of it is this bloody death publicly of the martyr Stephen. Now, this is Saul. All right. Now, listen to the words of Jesus as he confronts Saul there on the road. He said this to Saul, why do you persecute my church? Is that what he says? It's not what he says. Why does he say, why are you persecuting followers of the way? But that's not what he says. Does he say, why are you persecuting my disciples? That's not what he says. What he says is, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, I want you to think for the rest of our time studying the word this morning about the significance of that. That Jesus has such close identity with his bride, the church, that he refers to her as me. And if you begin to think about that and meditate on it, your brain's going to explode. Because the applications of that tiny, tiny word, me, are cataclysmic. They go everywhere. Now, typically, in a sermon on this text, the first application that would be made of this is what? Well, that it's such a comfort to us as Christians when Child Protective Services shows up because we are being obedient to Scripture and not simply claiming to love our children and not disciplining them, but really loving them by disciplining them, that God sees that Child Protective Services persecution of one of our mothers. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that the person that works at Child Protective Services is the persecutor. But certainly the people that called them anonymously are persecuting for doing what God commanded her to do, right? And God sees that act of persecution. God sees her vulnerability. God sees their faithfulness as parents. And God sees that as him being persecuted, Because his identification with his bride, with his people, is so tight that to touch them is to touch him. Now, this is normal application. We all understand that this means that the underground church in China for many years grew and was vital. Why? Because they were the bride of Christ and Christ was pleased as they were persecuted to have the blood of the martyrs the seed of the church. And in the midst of the persecution, he made her fruitful. And everywhere around the world today, that those who belong to Christ suffer because of their identification with him. God blesses them. Sometimes they're sawn in two. 
But think of the entry into his presence forevermore. Sometimes they receive their children back, like Kara did. She has her baby back, right? Nevertheless, God identifies with us. This is a very safe interpretation of the text, isn't it? And so we're used to hearing that God loves his bride, that Jesus Christ loves his bride. Now, in this church, we take it a little bit further. All right? And you're used to hearing by now that one of the applications of this relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, is that wives are to submit to their husbands. And husbands are to love their wives. Because if Jesus Christ loves his bride and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The husband should love his wife. Because Christ loves his bride. And if... Saul says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now do this and go there. And he's blind. He has no choice. (laughs) He holds hands with a dude, which I hear they do in Europe. Right? And I know they do in Africa. And he's blind. And so he's led to Damascus, right? And he's for three days reduced to being a child again takes a hit like that for Saul to become the Apostle Paul. And so what? In an instant, that son is rendered submissive. In other words, in an instant, the bride of Christ is, is, is given a father, a given a man who will feed her, who will teach her, who will discipline her, who will die for her. In other words, here we have a persecutor needing to become a mother to the mother church, right? Because that's what I am. I'm a a nursing father. I'm a mother to the church. The church is a mother. All right, it it gets complicated, okay? But, But think, what has to happen is God has to make this persecutor of the church into a nursing mother, prepared to die moment by moment, night and day for the church. And so he renders him submissive to the church. And all of a sudden, he's holding hands and saying, take me where I should go. And and the bridegroom is telling the bride where to go. And she's submissive. Paul's submissive, right? And the rest of his life, he gives to nursing the church. All right? And so here in this church, one of the applications of this text And all the other texts that talk about the church being the bride of Christ, one of the applications is the bride should submit to her groom. The church should submit to her head. You know where it speaks of this, right? You know that over in Ephesians it says to us this. It says... As the church, Ephesians 5.24, is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be, would be 
holy and blameless. And so Jesus, the bridegroom, identifies so closely with the bride, the church, that when a man persecutes the church, he persecutes him. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Therefore, Christ loves us, the church. Today he protects us as he did back then. And therefore the church should submit to him because he loves us and protects us. Therefore, in marriage, every husband should give himself to his bride, should protect his bride, and every bride should submit to their head as Christ submits to to her, as the church submits to Christ, her bridegroom. Right? You remember how when it comes to fatherhood, we always like to think that we, we learn what it is to be a father, and then we begin to understand who God is as the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. I believe in God the Father, our Father which art in heaven. All right? And so if you've had a good father, you have a leg up on everybody else. <laughs> because you, you can immediately begin to know what it is to, to relate to God as father. But what if you have a bad father, which most people today do? then all of a sudden you need to like go into Islam because they don't have any concept of God as father. Or you need to go into liberalism because they've left fatherhood begun. You know, I baptize you in the name of the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. And doesn't that feel better? (laughs) You know, hey people, listen, I spent a decade, over a decade of my life in the PCUSA, and I guarantee you, at presbytery meeting after presbytery, never did anybody pray to God as father. And they may still have baptized in the Trinitarian name, but that was it. It was pure early church, the heresy of modalism. <laughs> I was there. I saw it. <laughs> okay? And so we think, well, you know, if you've had a good father, then you can think of God as father. And if you think of God as father and you've had a good father, it just really, it just really sort of loosens everything up. And you can be a real spiritual person. But if you haven't had a good father, then you're really, really, really a hurting scooter. You know? And so maybe it would be better for you to pray to God as, you know, creator or even mother. You know? If that works for you, it's cool. And what we see the Bible teaches is that God is not known to us as father because we've had good fathers, but we know what a good father is because we know God the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. God is the archetype. And only insofar as human fatherhood reflects the goodness, the mercy, the truth, the justice, the faithfulness of God, our Heavenly Father, does it dignify itself with the name Father. In other words, the guy that lies on a couch drinking beer and watching television and demanding his wife go get him another beer is not a father. And he's not a husband either. And that's the second thing we learn. We don't know who God is by our human fathers, but we know whether or not our human fathers are fathers because we know God the Father. And the same thing is true of husbands and wives. We don't know what a good husband is and therefore know who our bridegroom is, Christ, but we look at the bridegroom and we see him on the cross pouring out his blood for his bride. And we see the bride faithful to her master. We see her submitting to him. And then we begin to understand what marriage is. 
just begin to understand what it is to be a husband. We just begin to understand what it is to be a wife. And so really, those who have been raised by a bad father and those who have a bad husband have a leg up on those of us who've had a good father and who have a good husband because they have in their hearts a hunger for something that heals them. And they're driven to God. And they learn what it is to be a father. They learn what it is to be betrothed to the bridegroom. They learn what it is to be clean by him, to have him purchase our redemption, to have him give us the pure milk of his word, to discipline us from pure love, not because he's had a nasty day. See, when Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, and and Saul was persecuting the church, When Jesus says, I'm the one you're persecuting, what we begin to see is that if we will study the fatherhood of God, if we will study what it is to be the bridegroom of Christ and to have him as our husband, then our human marriages, our our prayer life to the Father, all these things begin to explode with vitality and beauty. Do you see this? And so it's safe to apply this text by saying that Christ sees the persecution of Christians and cares about it because he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. That's a safe application. But then you move to the application that, and because he cares for us so tenderly, what we should do is submit to him. (laughs) Here's an idea. If he cares for me well, shouldn't I submit to him? Shouldn't the church produce the fruit that the bridegroom has impregnated her to produce? (laughs) And you go, whoa, you know, where did that come from? People, what? Every single television show you watch is filled with sexual perversion and illusions and double entendres. And I'm not supposed to make reference to the sex act here to help you understand evangelism? (laughs) That's the archetype. And the only reason there's any eroticism in human life is that God has ordained the church to bear him fruit. And I'm not supposed to talk about it? (laughs) Come on. Come on, let me loose. Do you know something? Do you know that if you read Calvin's Institutes, and I hope all of you recognize that Calvin is the father of the restoration of the church, Calvin and Luther. You know, if you read Calvin's Institutes, the man he quotes more than any other man, in other words, outside of the canon of Scripture, what he quotes most is who? Augustine. And you know who the number two person is, he quotes? Now, hold for a second, and let me move away. Do you know that today nobody ever preaches on Song of Solomon? Who's ever heard a sermon on Song of Solomon? And why is it that we never preach on Song of Solomon? I mean, again, 
Every television show you watch is filled with sexual illusions. But you can't have Song of Solomon in the church. Oh, no. You know, we don't want to hear anything about those uh, melons. <laughs> you know, not in the church, you know. And you know, one of the reasons nobody ever preaches about Song of Solomon today is that all of the intellectuals with terminal degrees who run the church today have taught us that we should never interpret Scripture allegorically. And how on earth are you going to preach Song of Solomon without allegory? <laughs> you don't want literalism there, let me, let me tell you. We had a Valentine's Day party once at this church where one of our elders got up. We were all supposed to write poems to our wives as a part of this Valentine's Day. And I'll never forget that night. (laughs) Do you remember this? He got up and he read a long section of Song of Solomon to his wife in front of us all. And it was enough to make me blush. (laughs) You know, we don't want Song of Solomon literal. And since we can't have it allegorical, we don't get it at all. Now, in the Middle Ages, in the 12th century, there was a man who wrote a commentary on the book of Song of Solomon. And he, that man, is the second most quoted man in the Institutes by Calvin. And that man's name is Bernard of Clairvaux. Let me read to you. Somebody said to him, what is it like having Christ as our bridegroom. And here's what he said personally about what it was like for him. He said, you ask then, this is Bernard of Clairvaux, you ask then how I knew that he was present since his ways are past finding out. Because the word is living and effective. And as soon as ever he entered into me, he has aroused my sleeping soul. Now, is that beautiful or isn't it? And you begin to know whether you really understand what sexual eroticism is. The second he entered into me, he has aroused my sleeping soul and stirred and softened and pricked my heart. And hitherto I was sick and hard as stone. He has begun to pluck up and destroy, to plant and to build, to water the dry places and to shed light upon the dark, to open what was shut, to warm the chill, to make the crooked straight and the rough places plain, so that my soul has blessed the Lord and all that is within me praised his holy name. Thus has the bridegroom entered into me. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, it's like the old Monty Python question. You know, where is the ambiguity? Give me some ambiguity. I can't handle that literalism. Now listen. This is the meaning behind the bridegroom and the bride. This is the meaning behind Christ and the church. And if he enters into us, what do we do? We bear fruit. And if we are at the marriage feast of the Lamb, what are we dressed in? 
Do you know that the book of Revelation tells us that our clothing at the marriage feast of the Lamb is what? It's the righteous deeds of the saint. It's our fruit. Here it is. Then I saw a new heaven, Revelation 21, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. She is our mother. Remember Paul saying this in Galatians. The New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Isn't that wonderful? And then Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, if we're the bridegroom, and there's going to be a marriage feast of the Lamb, we should want to be ready, right? Don't you want to be ready for that? She has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's her clothing. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now, people... Brothers and sisters, think. This is the meaning of sex. This is the meaning of marriage. This is the meaning of being a wife. The meaning of being a husband. This is the meaning of being a child. And so when Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? What he's saying is he has such close identification with the, with the church, his bride that to touch her is to touch him. And this means that there's nothing that pleases her more than to give herself to him. And when she gives herself to him, inevitably she bears fruit. Because the Word of God never goes out and returns to him void. (laughs) But it always accomplishes It always produces. It's always fruitful, the Word of God, when it goes out. And so all the television programs and all the video games and all the movies and all the Us People magazines, you know, everything, it's always sex, 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 sex. And today's the 50th anniversary of the FDA approving the pill. All right? And, and, and uh, the Washington Post yesterday said that this has made motherhood much better. And so guess what? The church is sterile. There's unbelievable commotion under the sheets of the church. But she's taken the pill, and there's no obedience, and there's no fruit in the church today. There's none. All of you are addicted to pornography. Wives don't submit to their husbands. Husbands, they lie on the sofa. (laughs) And they say to their wife, come, bring me drink. You know, like the cows of Bashan. You know, and Amos, you know. She, She lies there and she says to her husband, come, bring me that I may drink. Remember that in Amos? You know? And we've all taken the pill. 
And instead of it being like priests like people, it's 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 you know, it's like television like church. We're all a bunch of Seinfelds. You know, a bunch of sterile yuppies in urban America laughing and laughing and laughing until we die and face the judgment seat of God. And the prophets lie to the people and the people love it that way. And here we have the most beautiful thing a man, a woman, a child could imagine. We have a bridegroom who is faithful to his bride. You put a finger on that bride and bam! You are blind and you are holding hands so that you know which way to walk. And from then on, guess what? You consider your life nothing if only you may love the church and give yourself up for her. Think of Paul, shipwrecked and naked and stoned and riding a bag out of the back of the, the wall of the city. All of a sudden, he loves the bride because his master loves the bride and his master communicated the vision. You're touching her. You touch me. He says, okay, won't touch her anymore. I learned. That's what happens. Now, why have you never heard this? Why have you never heard this? You've certainly heard all about sex, haven't you? And today we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the pill. What a great holiday. But in the church, why have you never heard about needing to be dressed? I mean, you know you should be clothed right because you know the guy that didn't have the right clothing on was cast out of the feast. You remember Jesus told us that. So you know clothing at the marriage feast pretty doggone important. So then you look at James and it says that faith without works is dead. And you've just heard that the clothing, the bride who is a virgin, ready, sanctified for her husband, the clothing she'll wear is fruitfulness, right? So it must be pretty important that you and I and we bear fruit for our bridegroom, right? And so all of a sudden there's a new urgency to making disciples, isn't there? There's a new urgency to corporate worship. When are you more impregnated with the word of God than Sunday morning and go out prepared to bear fruit? Not your devotional times privately. It's when the church assembles. And then you think about things like, for instance, church discipline. And now you're thinking about bridegroom and bride and what it means to be faithful to the bridegroom. It means to submit to him as head, right? Everybody with me. Everybody with me. All right? And then you think, oh, now I understand church discipline. Because what the Bible says in Matthew 18 is, look, if your brother sins against you, go one-on-one and deal with him. And if he won't listen to you, then go two-on-one and deal with him. And if he still won't listen to you, tell it to the church. In other words, go to his mother and tell the mother. And if he still won't listen to you, what? I tell you, I have given you the power of the keys. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And all of a sudden, all of us are going, 
Whoa! Being disciplined by the church of Jesus Christ is authority. Because you have refused the bride of the bridegroom. And no one ever thinks about that today. The church disciplines someone and they kiss it off. You go one-on-one, they kiss you off. You go two-on-two, they kiss you off. You tell it to the church and they thumb their nose at the church and go out in the community and they lie and lie and lie. And then you try to blur the distinctions. When you're with them, you say, well, you know, Tim Bailey sometimes can be obnoxious and like a duh. When has any church ever had a pastor who can't be obnoxious? When has God chosen to have his authority reside in a human being who isn't obnoxious? Has any wife ever had a husband who wasn't obnoxious? And Jesus says that you're to submit to him as unto Christ. And so the church exercises authority. And people kiss that off. And we're so worried about being called a cult that we just say, God bless you, brother. Go your way. Live in peace. Find another church that works for you. The bride? That's how she kisses off her bridegroom's authority? And preachers get up and they say, you know, sometimes, you know, I wonder whether... And that's the authority of the bridegroom, a pastor getting up and suggesting and and thinking and wondering and, and positing. And that's the authority of the bridegroom. And then Jesus in Matthew 18 says this. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. And we have reduced that little ditty to being a special feeling about prayer meetings. Do you understand? It's in the context of the authority of the church. Where one goes to sin, two go to sin, then it's told to the church, and then they won't listen to the church, and then he says, if you bind on earth, it is bound in heaven. If you loose on earth, it's loosened. I tell you where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. And it's a ditty about prayer meetings. And you go, oh, Tim, you know, now all of us are going to get visited by Child Protective Services for being involved in a cult. Listen, people, this is just boring, yawn, soporific teaching all across church history. I'm giving you nothing that every single father of the church has not taught. And you go, oh, no, that can't be true because I've never heard it any other place than here, and I've never heard it any other Sunday here other than now. And I say, well, it took us a while. I had to have all the pastor's college men thinking out loud for three hours to get this this week. Praise God for them. Now, I don't want to trivialize a beautiful doctrine, but I have to make another application. And that is, 
Can you imagine the significance, the appalling significance of a son who tells his mother to shut up, who uses the slightest tone with his mother? Can you imagine that? Do you understand what I'm saying? If Jesus was this, this jealous of his authority and dignity when anybody touched his bride, can you imagine how we as fathers and husbands should relate to a son who speaks with a tone to his mother? What are we saying about the church and her bridegroom? We cannot begin to teach the nature of the church and her bridegroom, Jesus Christ, if we do not have respect for authority in our homes. If you ever turn your face from your mother when she's speaking to you, if you ever use a tone of voice, and I can't even speak of you touching her, You deserve to die if you do that to your mother. There's nothing that has made the hair stand up on the back of my neck than when I have heard of children in this church touching their mother in anger. No father who knows God would ever allow his children to treat his wife in that way. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's the identity of a husband with his wife. When his children approach their mother, they are to be absolutely respectful. And if you as a husband have in any way contributed to the disrespecting of your wife by your children, there is no excuse for you. And I have, to my shame. Now, one last thing. How awful it is when a bridegroom so despises his bride that his children learn to do that from him. You speak to your wife in a way that shows that you despise her as the weaker sex, that you despise her tears, that you despise her weakness, that you despise the weight she's gained from giving birth to your children, from bearing you fruit, from her stretch marks, from her breasts that carried the milk that nursed your children. And you despise her. And your children see that and they despise their mother. This is godlessness. This church, if you abuse your wife, we discipline you. We don't care if you're the senior pastor. We will discipline you. Why? Because we will not lie about Christ and his bride. We will not do it. 
We'll bring you home from the mission field. We'll ask you to step down from the pastorate. We'll remove you from office. We'll have you go into a room privately with a couple of the elders. And it doesn't matter who you are. We will not have husbands who lie about the relationship of Christ and his church. Won't do it. And if that makes you your skin cringe because, you know, there's like just too much talk of authority and sex here, I go, dude, that's what you want every other minute of every other day of every other week of every other month of every other year of your life, and then you come in church and you want everything to be vapid and innocuous and, like, inapplicable? Here's an idea. Let's have sex be where it should be, in the church. Let's have the church bearing fruit. Let's forget the pill. Let's have submission and authority and love and protection. Let's have homes reflect what should be true between the church and Christ. He's our head. We will submit to him, and we will bear him fruit, and he'll make us holy until we die. And then we'll have some clothing to wear when we're at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We won't be cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forevermore. Now, when have you ever heard a mission statement of a church like that? (laughs) Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Okay, okay, are you ready? Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) 